Welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. This week, we're going in deep to the Niger Delta in Africa. We're talking to Gordon Abiyama, who is the head of the African Centre for Geoclassical Economics. He's got a long background as a journalist. He's uh, also involved with our friends at the Earth Rights Institute uh, based in America. So uh, great to have Gordon on the show. We're talking about, uh, yeah, basically land grabs, oil theft, and the damage that such resource grabbing can cause the community when the economic system both allows this free money, if you like, to be grabbed and then doesn't penalize them for the pollution. The results are disastrous for the community. We're with Gordon Abiyama, the director from the Center for Geoclassical Economics in Africa. So, Gordon, you were on the show a couple of years ago. Uh, I bet a lot has happened since then. What have been some of the major developments for you in Nigeria? Let the listeners know what's happening on the ground. Thank you very much, Carl. Well, a lot of uh, development has been taking place, actually. My organization has been involved with... Um, agitations for resource rents control and as well as also we involved we got involved in um, eco village development too which is very dear to my heart but unfortunately we got to a point where we were stuck with that project but we hoping that we'll pick up on that as soon as we can get uh, things going okay well let's dive into it so uh, the name of the eco village and what is the whole concept about where is it located uh, and what are some of the challenges you're facing it is called the Udi eco village located in the niger delta region of nigeria which uh, is a community that was destroyed um 1999 over resource uh, agitations as well and we think that uh, eco village development provides the plank upon which to develop um, sustainable local economies you know that's why uh, we got into it and we we're able to get the land about five acres of land which is still available now and so you're talking niger delta that's that's a war zone over oil isn't it like you you're speaking very nicely here but it must be pretty darn tough on the ground there's uh gas flares and all sorts of things, uh, acid rain, you name it. Is, is tell, Explain what life in the Odi region is like of the Niger Delta. Thank you very much. You got it right. It's a region that's been uh, that's fraught with a lot of developmental problems, particularly the effect of oil exploration in that region because it is oil-rich, actually, but the people are not rich. So much activities of the multinational companies, which have resulted in uh, um, land degradation, pollution, you know, so much gas flaring all over the places. And we have effects of acid rain, you know, people having all kinds of disease and all that. And remember, I remember once a lady just, uh, we went to Goni land and uh, we saw all kinds of burial posters. And we see young, young people just dying, 40 years, 45 years for a life well spent, that's how it is written. They begin to wonder what kind of life was it was well spent because somebody living just 41 years old has just uh, begun life. I think they say life starts at 40. So a young lady came and complained, well, oil companies, oil has come and taken away all our elderly 
people. So most of the people available now are just young, young people. They're there too and not um, getting to live to old age. So it's really a problem. So how much has the average life expectancy fallen since the mid-90s? And So was oil ex- just discovered then or was that when the battle erupted? I've seen some crazy photos uh, of oil leaking through lagoons and beautiful waterways. Uh, yeah, but it's an all-out onslaught, isn't it? Yes, as a matter of fact, oil was discovered since 1956 commercially. But at that point... People were not aware of the dangers of this oil exploration until um, about a decade or two ago when uh, we began to feel the, the impact of these uh, activities. And then what happened naturally, it erupted into agitations and you find uh, you know, it's actually a battle between the locals and the federal government you know, and the multinationals backed up by the federal government. So that's the story till today. Yeah, the state enforcing corporate interests uh, seems like a global trend. And so in terms of some of the oil spillages there, I was shocked to hear uh, that the Florida Deepwater Horizon oil spill that happened probably three years ago that BP was responsible for, it was huge international news for a couple of months where they couldn't stop the oil leaking. Well, it sounds like that sort of activity has been going on in the Niger Delta uh, for decades. And what did you think when you saw that BP disaster off the coast of Florida here in America? Well, when I saw what happened in Florida, I see that they rallied around quickly to see how they can contain it. But in our case, it just left like that, you know, and the effect has been very, very disastrous in a, on a monumental level. For example, I, I visited one of those scenes. It's not just only Shell BP. We have Egypt, French companies as well. Even American companies like Chevron too, they're all the same thing, you know. So when we got there, I was there with some um, Italian journalists. And when we got there, the spill was just all over the place. That very night as we got home, all of us had throat infection. All of us had throat infection. We couldn't breathe properly. So when we begin to look at that kind of scenario, and what about the people who are living there? They say every day we go to the hospital, every day we go to the hospital. And when the oil companies are confronted about this situation, well, they say, well, you are responsible for blowing up the oil pipeline, so you bear the brunt of what you have done. Actually, it's not them. It's not the locals that blow up the pipelines, actually. Some of the pipelines have been there for over 40 years to 50 years, and they need change, but they don't want to spend that money to effect the change. So they put the blame on the locals and we bear the brunt of all these uh, problems. Can you, It's just heartbreaking hearing this story. And uh, what about um, the local militia, the guerrilla groups? Uh, is there a philosophical background to them? Are they anarchists? Uh, is there, you know, it, it's, a, it's a sovereignty issue, I dare say, but uh, is there any context you can add to those militia we see in boats uh, and, you know, uh, screaming around with their uh, machine guns and, and, and attacking some of these gas flares and these sort of things? I mean, you, when the pollution is so bad and the government does nothing, 
nothing, what other alternatives do, does one have? Well, thank you for asking that question. As a matter of fact, there has been that kind of militant agitations, you know. But for now, things seem to have changed a little while because the federal government came up with a program, and they call it the Amnesty Program. And actually, this program only favored, pacified the militants. Not everybody's a militant. So they brought this militant out, asked them to submit their guns. They submitted a lot of guns and uh, took them to Abuja, sent some abroad for training and all that. Some have been paid on a monthly basis. But the problem, there are others who are not militants, like me and other people. So what are they going to do about us? So it's like it's pace to be a militant. That's the message they seem to be saying across. But not everybody can have the, the, the liver to to go carry guns, you know. So it's a matter of resource control agitation. And, um, you know, actually it's in line with the uh, judge's um, principle. But below the ground, all resources below the ground, the Constitution says, belongs to the federal government, you know. So that effectively takes these resources away from the people right into the hands of the federal government. So the agitation is that, okay, let the states control the resources that they have. If that has been done, I bet you the whole of Niger Delta would have been what we call an Eldorado, a very prosperous region, you know, but um, we call it federalism. This is what we practice, but actually we do not practice federalism. So we are agitating for fiscal, fiscal federalism, where each states are federating units and then, of course, in Nigeria as a whole, every state has so much natural resource, which is untapped because oil has become an easy source of wealth and money. Under the circumstance, the only condition we see is that we want to work within the ambit of the law, within the ambit of the Constitution. And we say, okay, fine. We don't want the oil exploration to stop, but let the locals have a stake and the wealth that has been got out of the, the ground. In other words, let them have a percentage equity and participation. That way, you make them stakeholders. And uh, you know, some of them have destroyed some of this pipeline, actually, out of frustration, you know, frustration. Because you see, oil companies operate in a particular place and within the locality of the people. Where they operate, you find electricity steady 24 hours find very clean water, and the staff have, you know, they have a cinema hall and everything going fine for them. But just next door, you find a community. Poverty, touch houses, no water. In fact, um, poverty is all over the place. And these people look at it just across, just maybe a few meters from them, they see a different, you know, it's uh, a different... Um, uh, the situation, social situation entirely. And uh, it also has created prostitution and uh, unwanted pregnancies because most of these young girls in the community will want to go around these oil companies' workers to try and see if they can get some some money, you know. And by doing so, they get impregnated. And when they get impregnated, maybe 16 years, 14 years, they don't know nothing. And then you ask them, who impregnated you? 
They don't even know the name of the person. They say, well, it's one shell worker, one Chevron worker that is there that did it. But that guy may be there for just two weeks and he's taken off to another place in another two, three weeks. So that's the situation we find ourselves. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist, and this week we're discussing all things Niger Delta with Gordon Abiyama from the African Centre for Geoclassical Economics. And Gordon, uh, uh, this is, uh, you're so uh, mildly mannered here speaking. Uh, I, I wouldn't blame you if you're screaming into the microphone telling us this story, but uh, uh, what sort of awakening have the people? taken to hearing your story about a sense of resource sovereignty and how you know w- the government should be behaving with all this pain you know uh, uh, this lower life expectancy uh, all of the things you've described the pollution are people really switching on to thinking there is another way to govern society and our natural resources yes thank you carl unfortunately um we can depend upon the politicians because um, they are also on the bandwagon with the with the oil companies and because they, it's what they get out. That's what they are concerned about. But the good thing is that um, the um, civil society group has been very, very effective and much functional. So what we do is that we have a coalition of civil society group that push for change and also we work to create awareness among the people. So there's so much awareness among the local people about um, how to bring about positive change. You know, that's just what we are, we are doing and we are counting on their support. I often wonder uh, what what it will take for the people to recognize that economics is not that difficult and, you know, we can discuss this in a manner that is attractive to small businessmen and uh, attractive to militants in the same sentence and that's always a question for me is how much do the people have to take before they start getting not only organized in protest but in actually propagating policies that are uh, grounded in solid economic theory that really can't be debated now you're saying the politicians are bought out you know that's a global trend unfortunately but is there much influence through any un channels for example or some other line in that you might be able to shine the international spotlight on when it comes to these resource rents that oil so represents well unfortunately um the united nations body has not done much but they've done a bit but not much you know what these people really need it's for their lifestyle to change. You know, for example, we have a lot of uh, women groups. They need just a little empowerment so that they could get into their own, get into businesses, not very big businesses. Maybe a young lady will need just about a couple of thousand dollars to help us set up um, a fashion shop or a cold store or maybe to go to the village and buy foodstuffs and come to the city and sell. There's empowerment, you know, and with all the resource wealth going out, it would be a good thing to consider what we call the resource uh, dividend, cash dividend for people like that. Maybe a, a revolving loan for these youth groups and women groups to be able to 
you know, get busy. Because the, the idle mind, they say is the devil's workshop, you know. And they tend to get all kinds of ideas when you're idle, when you don't have anything to do. You're easily agitated, you're easily annoyed. But when you have something to do, you have a skill, you have a, a, a place to go. You know, there are no jobs there, actually. No jobs. It's just government. And government can't employ everybody. So the private sector has to has to be developed one way or the other. I remember once uh, a former head of state, which is President uh, Babangida, he made a comment. He said he can't understand why the Nigerian economy has not collapsed. He has asked his economists why the, the economy has not collapsed because he has tried every economic prescription, you know, and nothing seemed to work, and yet the economy is, has not collapsed. So he wondered, you know, but he didn't know the answer, and his economy didn't even give him the answer. But the answer is simply that the informal sector is the one shouldering the development of the whole country, the sustainability of the country. The informal sector, maybe the shoe, the cobbler, the trader, the fashion designer, who is laboring to see that the economy, they must survive one way or the other. But unfortunately, all the wealth that they succeed in producing at one end of the equation has been scooped up by by the elite. So it's like um, the poor maybe subsidizing the the rich and the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So the wealth gap is extending day by day. And that is sad, you know. So let's work back to a good news story and this eco village. Uh, how many houses are you looking to build and what sort of budget do you need to, to set up this eco village? Actually, the eco village concept is a very good concept of sustainable development. Now, in order we have the, the eco village, we already have about five acres of land. Now, we even put some structures here already, you know, but um, our funds run out. So the whole thing has come to a standstill for now. But the idea is it's not dead and it will not die. As soon as we're able to raise some funds, we're going to start again. All we need is just about $25,000 to get it going. And really, the whole idea is that we want to build a living and learning center. You know, living and learning center. What that entails is that we would like to have a, a dormitory, a restaurant, and some guest houses, locally designed guest houses, because the Odi community is a very fledging community. And every year, even to promote ecotourism, so the center itself has a, a great um, you know, prospects of self-sustainability in terms of human trafficking there, you know, visitors coming into the community. Because um, every year at about this time, for about seven days, we have the big event, they call it the Buffalo Festival, where we have a record of over 100,000 youths from all the different communities, even from abroad, from the different cities. They come there, and there are different programs, cultural programs, women programs, boats, boat racing, and so many things, and beach party and all that. So when they come, many of them don't have a place to stay. So if we have one or two or three or four or five, six little chalets, it will generate funds for the center. And that will also, we might even get involved in some of the programs in the, in the, in the festival to make our mark. And also just round the corner there, the federal government has what is known as the Bioresource Center. It's a, it's a center where they try to encourage youths 
from going for white collar jobs into investing in, in agriculture, like uh, fish farming, mushroom farming, snail farming, and uh, you know things like that. But the center has not been so functional, mainly because um, for them to bring people, there are people who are willing to learn. People want to, you know, be self-sufficient and economically they want to to prosper also. So what they the lack there is that there is no dormitory for them to to sleep because trainings like that is not just a one day it takes one week in two weeks and these are people that come from far and near different states different communities so because of because of that the 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 center has not been able to to embark on such training programs but with the Living a learning center there and we have a dormitory of little, little beds. We can encourage them to look. We can even organize a training in collaboration with, with the center because we had a meeting with them at the federal capital Abuja some time ago of collaborative partnership with the center. And they were very excited about it. So, but um, the honors, you know, is on us to, to prove our worth. And I have seen some photos. You're using mud bricks, and uh, it looks like a beautiful location where it is. And are you talking, in a, by chance, about this concept of permaculture at all, and using permaculture principles and aquaponics to help uh, grow the food organically and uh, utilize the natural energy of the the sun, the wind, the rain? the slope of the land to ensure that uh, one plant is planted next to another and the companion planting, they call it, so that the waste from one plant feeds the next. Is that sort of thinking uh, amongst some of your your teachers you work with? Yeah, it's, it's one of the commissions, permaculture is one of the commissions, actually, because uh, even the, the, the Bios Resource Centre has those uh, training programs or capabilities, you know. So it, it will form a central part of the, of the center itself. You know, and the society itself is, is a farming society. Uh, one good thing is that OD itself is not really an oil-producing town. There's no oil company in the town, but it's just that the oil pipelines, they pass, they pass through it. But at the far distance, maybe across the river, so the town itself is not um, really, unlike some other communities where the oil is really produced right around them. So that's um, one difference that is there. So, and it's a very big, big community. Okay, well, as we wrap up, uh, is what is your key statement for people to understand when they're trying to grasp what geoclassical economics is all about? Well, geoclassical economics is all about land economics, you know, respect for earth and nurture it and use it sustainably. I give an example. In that community, we had to arrest two boys they were exploiting fishes in that community in a very unsustainable way. What did they use? They bought a chemical called gamalin 20. I don't know if you're aware of it. It's a very toxic chemical. They just pour that in the ponds. We have several ponds, fishing ponds. They pour it and they wait within 10, 15, 20 minutes. The fishes begin to come up dead. Then they scoop them up and go and sell them, make a lot of money. That kills even the little ones. 
So once and for all, they make their money, and that's all. So we caught them, and we had to really deal with them in the local way. You know, you had to tie them up, flog them from the beginning of the town to the other end. They didn't even take, they didn't lock them up, but they just gave them some. <laughs> that's a local system of discipline, yeah. you know, and your family is watching you. All your friends are watching you as you're being flogged, tied from one end of the town to the other end, you know. So these are some of the things, you know. And again, one thing is that in eco-tourism that I was talking about, we have several of those ponds. Because of this way, it 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 disrupted that um, that uh, that that fishing festival we used to have. And every year, there's a law that nobody will go and fish in those ponds. So they will allow the fishes to grow and grow and grow and mature. Then at that point in time, when it gets to the to the date. Then they announced to everybody, say, okay, it's time to go and fish in that pond. So everybody that wants to go there, you now pay money. If you want to use a net, you pay money for the net. You want to use a boat, you pay money for the boat. But you have to pay money in order to exploit it. And that has been a source of fun also for the community to inject back into the pond when the fishing is, is done for the next year again. So I think we, the center will encourage things like that. Well, thank you, Gordon Abiyama, from the African Center for Geoclassical Economics. That is uh, quite a story and great to finish off with a positive note. Listeners, any uh, crowdfunders out there, please get in touch. Renegades at earthsharing.org.au. Renegades at earthsharing.org.au. Let's see what we can do to help Gordon. Thank you very much. And that was Gordon Abiyama from the Africa Centre for Geoclassical Economics, which has been in operation since the year 2000. Uh, they've done quite a lot of work in the Odi community in the Niger Delta, where they've had shiploads of computers brought over. They've done tree plantings. Uh, they've run education courses. They've been involved in uh, weekly radio shows like this one. And so uh, Gordon Obiyama and his team are trying to uh, build up the knowledge for the alternative living and learning environments that we need. And that's where he needs our help. I'm hoping and dreaming that someone listening would be interested in assisting with a crowdfunding campaign. He only needs $25,000 to raise. It shouldn't be too hard in this online digital age. Please get in touch with me if you can. It's important that we support people who are showing genuine leadership in uh, developing nations uh, such as Nigeria. So, uh, yeah, what a story. Thanks very much, Gordon, for sharing that with us. This was another interview brought to you from the Council of Georgia's Organizations Conference held in Southfield in Michigan near Detroit um, in early August. So uh, watch out for next week's interview with Alodia Arnold. I'm going to whip off now to our 124th annual dinner. Yes, we have Professor Miranda Stewart presenting at the Royal Society of Science. Her presentation will start at about 7.15. If you'd like to pop down, here's a $30 door charge to cover the refreshments of the evening, which will mainly be served before her presentation time. So hopefully some of you are commuting in to see that talk right now. Get in touch via at Earthsharing on Twitter 
or renegades at earthsharing.org.au. The show notes will be up in 24 hours with links to Gordon's great work. Thanks for supporting 3CR and the Renegade Economists.